to 2 Corinthians. Um, and we've talked about this a little bit, but um, when Paul Paul writes the letter, the first letter, the first epistle to the Corinthians is probably actually the second letter he wrote. Um, and this one may be the third or the fourth. Uh, we don't really know. Um, and we don't know what the questions were. So a lot of the a lot of what we do with this, this pass, these passages is kind of reconstructing what was the situation. Um, and we have talked about a ton of stuff. Excuse me. Over the last eight or nine weeks, uh, we have talked about the way that um, the the world outside world had influenced the Corinthian church, the sins that the Corinthian church had allowed um, to be normalized. And um, I want to I want to emphasize that point. It is not that the problem was not that there were sinners in the church. The problem was that sinful behavior was being normalized and accepted by the church rather than being dealt with lovingly um, but truthfully. Um, And this church had a lot of issues, um, particularly about the way they were preaching the gospel. And last week we talked about the resurrection and the, and the, the centrality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul finishes up the, the, the book of 1 Corinthians. He says goodbye to some people. He has some concluding things. Um, and then something prompted him to write a second letter to them, or a third letter, or a fourth letter. We, we don't know. Um, by the way, th- this is one of those things about... Um, this is a, a little bit of a historical aside, but I, I want to mention it very briefly. One of the very unique things about Christianity in this time period, in the, the very first few decades of the Christian faith, was that the Christian ministers adopted this practice we call epistolary ministry. Um, because they were not very, there weren't a lot of wealthy Christians, so they couldn't travel around a lot, and you couldn't get a lot of sponsorship. Paul was, Paul was able to travel because, A, he had a number of wealthy people that were supporting his, his traveling ministry from the Church of Antioch, um, but also because he, as a Roman citizen, he was able to travel relatively cheaply. Um, he preferred walking to sailing, so that was easy. Um, but then he also was a tent maker by trade, a, an artisan uh, of some kind, and so he was able to kind of supplement his his income. But for a lot of people that were addressing things, they weren't able to do this. And also, it took a long time to get somewhere. Um, you were traveling by foot, um, on even on a good Roman road, uh, you might make 20 miles a day, 25 miles a day. A forced march for a Roman legion might be 40 miles a day. Um, but those were guys that were built for this, designed for this. They had all the supplies. So if you have to cover an area that's roughly the size of the continental United States, you can imagine trying to travel from New York to Minnesota to North Dakota to Washington and then finding out something was going on in Michigan and sitting there going, do I turn around and walk back to Michigan? Um, or do I just send a letter with somebody that's headed toward Michigan? And so Christianity became developed what was called the epistolary ministry, what we call today. Epistle is the Greek word for uh, letter. Um, and they just wrote letters, hundreds and thousands of letters. And the letters were relatively short. They could be copied. They could be memorized. They could be carried. Um, and, and that was one of the things that makes made Christianity, uh, helped Christianity spread and kind of normalize in the first century. And it's also the reason why about half of the New Testament is letters. Um, and some of these letters are absolutely enormous. I mean, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, they are, they are really, if you had to copy First and Second Corinthians by hand, you know. I mean, how many copies would we have? One, 
And we would just take really careful care of that one copy. Um, and so this is a lot what's going on. Anyway, so Paul hears, he sends 1 Corinthians. The church seems to have dealt with a lot of their issues. Not all of them, but most of them. But in between, in the interval, between, between the time that Paul heard about the situations he had to correct in 1 Corinthians and the time that he writes 2 Corinthians, some other teachers had apparently reached the Corinthian church. Um, and now, again, this is a little historical aside, but one of the really peculiar things about the Greco-Roman world was that um, the Greeks were fascinated by the Jews. Now, the Romans, eh, they were okay with them, um, but the Greeks were fascinated by the Jews because the Jews claimed to have this history that went back a thousand years, two thousand years to Abraham, and supposedly they had records of it. And if you know anything about the Greeks, the Greeks have Homer that tells the story of the gods and the Trojan War and all of those things. And so the Roman, the Greeks really loved this idea that when a Jewish teacher would come, when a Jewish rabbi would come, he was teaching this religion, this faith, this this way of life. He was a part of a group of people that their heritage went back two thousand years. So like these people, they're worshiping the way. They they worshipped before Homer had even written a line of the Iliad and the Odyssey. These people are so cool. And so a Jewish leader, a Jewish rabbi, shows up and starts teaching in the Romans, the, the Greeks and in Corinth, and to some extent the Romans that were in Greece. They were like, cool, these guys know this, this religion. Now you take that and you have a group of Corinthians who have been um, converted to Christianity by Paul, who is a Jewish rabbi, and so now they're preconditioned that if a Jewish rabbi says, shows up and says, I want to speak to you about what God has to say, they're like, yeah, all right, awesome, this is cool. Um, this, by the way, is one of the reasons that Jesus warns about sheep, uh, about wolves coming in among the sheep. And, and Paul um, really emphasizes the idea that you have to be discerning about what teachers you listen to. Anyway, um, one of the things that these false teachers seemed to do was they would come with letters that proved how important they were. They would walk in and say, would you like to see my resume? And here's my resume. And so in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, Paul is going to address um, the authority of human teachers... And he's going to reflect on the relationship that they have to Scripture and the Spirit of God. Okay? And this is an important balance to be had. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Do I need to tell you who I am? That's what Paul is saying. Do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written in our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So the very first thing that we want to notice as we, we get into this passage is that as Paul begins to address the Corinthians, the concern seems to be that the, someone had come along to the Corinthians and said, um, well, let me ask you this. If he's talking about tablets of stone and we're talking about the Bible, what's the first thing you think of? 
Ten Commandments, right? Um, because Moses had the Ten Commandments, they had them um, in stone. Now, by the way, the, they don't have those tablets anymore. Those those tablets were put in the Ark of the Covenant, um, and they were lost uh, somewhere uh, around 700, 800 um, BC. They're gone, um, and they wouldn't be discovered until 1941. Some of you know what I'm referring to. Uh, some of you have never seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Anyway, um, so he's so this he's basically saying to them, look, he says, I don't need a recommendation letter because you know who I am. And not only do you know who I am, you know what God did when I was there. Now, Paul is not saying that makes me superior to everybody else. But what Paul is saying is, you heard from me, and I, and I want to emphasize what Paul is trying to get to, because he's going to elaborate this so you can see this in the text. He's going to say, first of all, I taught the scriptures to you. Secondly, you received the scriptures. And third, the Spirit of God confirmed the scriptures to you. So why, now that somebody is coming to you and they have a really fancy resume, are you willing to listen to them Instead of listen to what I already told you. Now, Paul is not in competition. I want to emphasize this. Paul is not in competition with the false teachers. He's also not setting himself as being anti the tablets of stone. But rather he's saying, when I was there, and I'm going to point this out again, when I was there and I taught you what the scriptures mean, you believed it, and the Holy Spirit confirmed it. Okay? So what Paul is saying is there's basically, and, and the Apostle Paul, John will later use this, there's a threefold testimony to the authority of Scripture and the transformation, transformational work of the gospel in your lives. The first is someone preached it. Someone spoke the gospel and you knew it to be true somehow. Now, you don't know how. As a believer, you can't sit there and go through the mechanics of it and say, well, um, this neuron fired and at the same time an angel came down from heaven and transferred. That's not, we can't get, all we know is something in us clicked and said, this is true. This is true. A, a, a believer, a Christian, is not just somebody who gives consent to, okay, I guess the gospel works. There is something deep in us. We call it conviction. We call it the calling of the Holy Spirit, the quickening of the Holy Spirit. There's a million theological terms about it. But let's just say someone preaches the scriptures to you and it clicks. So there's the testimony of the preacher. There's the hearer. But then there's the Holy Spirit, all confirming the authority of Scripture. Such is the confidence, verse 4, that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now this is so, to me, this was such a freeing 
a, a freeing moment for me as a, as a Christian, as a pastor, to realize that the sufficiency of the ministry of the scriptures is not tied to my ability to persuade you how awesome I am. Now you go, what? Wait, did he just lose us on this one? What's going on? All right. The, the power of the Holy Spirit is not manifest because of a personality or because of a sales pitch or because of a media presentation or because, well, I got nothing else going on. The sufficiency of the scripture, again, and this may be important. I don't know if you've noticed this. There was a preacher and you received it and the Holy Spirit confirmed it. He says, so Paul says, guess what? My job in your lives was to simply present the scriptures in the hopes that God would be at work in you to hear them and that the Holy Spirit would confirm them. But my job was not to be the Holy Spirit. My job was not to convince you of my accuracy and truth. Now, there's a very valid discipline in, in academia and in Christian ministry called apologetics. Now, apologetics is not the person that apologizes for everything. How many of you have that person in your family? Everything that happens, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry this wasn't ready. Stop apologizing. I'm sorry for apologizing. All right? If you don't have that person in your family, you probably are that person in your family. Um, uh, uh, my family, and Nicole will testify to this, the DeVitros do not have the gene that involves apologizing for things. <laughs> if DeVitros are wrong, we just go, oh, okay, we were wrong, moving on. And everybody's like, shouldn't you like apologize 87 times? Why? I mean, that's just how DeVitros are. We're just, that's how we're built. You've met my dad. You haven't met my sisters. There's good reason. Um, but the, so, so apologetics is the ministry. Apology is a, is a, a presentation of the, of the, the reality of God, right? It's a philosophical discipline. It's a, it's a theological philosophical discipline where you sit there and you, you, you discuss the probability of the reality of the existence of God, of creative effect, and all this. It's a valid discipline. It's a, it's a good ministry. Um, but unfortunately, it can be very easily abused into the idea that all that is required for someone to believe the gospel is for me to convince them that it's right. And if I can just convince people, I don't understand how anyone who has children thinks this is a valid position. If I can convince you it is right, you will agree. That that does not work with human beings, right? I mean, it just, I was like, you can be as right as rain and people will go, that's awesome. You're like, the sky is blue. How many of you have ever had this conversation? The sky is blue. Prove it. Well, it's blue. Uh, no, I'm not looking up. You know, now we don't, that's an exaggeration, but we have people like that all the time. So apologetics is this discipline. It, it's valid, but the, the problem is that you sometimes can wander into this thing of believing that, that the gospel is about convince pe- convincing people that you are right. Paul says, I didn't need to do that with you. Why didn't I need to do that? Why didn't Paul have to do that? He trusted that when he presented the scriptures in the light of Christ, the people would hear through whatever God would do, and then the Holy Spirit would confirm it to be true. This is the confidence I have. 
Now, people obsess about this last line where he says, not of the letter of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And, and there's, a, there's a doctrinal position known as antinomianism. It, it, it's just Latin for uh, no law, against the law. And the argument is that when Jesus came, he destroyed all requirements. And as, if you believe in Jesus, anything you do is okay and right. You, you, are, you are free. Sin covers it all. Don't worry about how you live. It's not about your lifestyle. It's not about whether you, whether you, you sin or not. Jesus is going to forgive all your sins, so it's not a big deal. A, it's unbiblical. B, it's insane. And C, it's unbiblical. All right? And D through Z, it's unbiblical. That is not what Paul is saying. But what Paul is saying is... We can look at the scriptures and basically we can make the scriptures into a tomb or we can make the scriptures into a home. Now, what do I mean by that? He says, living by the letter, right? The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. What's the difference between a tomb and a home? Look at a mausoleum. It's got all the things that a house has. It's got walls. It's got a roof. It's got a floor. It doesn't have plumbing, but, you know. Some houses don't either. What's the difference between a, a mausoleum and a home? Well, a mausoleum is where you put dead people to keep the living out. A home is where living people live and they go out to live among others. And Paul says, look, the people that are going to sit there and they're going to give you the scripture and they're going to say, the scriptures close you in. The scriptures are all about restriction. The scriptures are all about don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. It's a, it's a list of tools it's a, and, a, and a bag of, it's a list of rules and a bag of tools that, that faith is all about just setting the parameters and living within the parameters. He says, that's, you're going to die like that. That's not how we live. If we take a living person and we put them into walls that they can't get out of what do we call that it's a prison is faith a prison no No. faith is a home faith is a is a place of living and life now verse 7 if the minister of death ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. He's, he's referencing a passage in Exodus 34. I won't go there, but uh, Moses comes down from receiving the commandments of God and his face is shining because he's been in the presence of God. And rather than celebrate the fact that he had been in the presence of God, the Israelites ask Moses to wear a veil over his head so that they don't have to deal with the reality of their God speaking to them. That's a whole thing. But Paul says, he says now, he says they, the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. He says this, the, the law was never meant to be permanent. The, the commandments were never to be, to be the end-all, be-all of life and faith. He goes, this was going to come to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, right? Don't do this or, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. 
For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now, Paul is making a very important doctrinal statement here. And I, I, I don't want to get too deep on it, but I want you to understand that what Paul is saying is what Jesus did, the gospel was not God's plan B. Now, what do I mean by that? There are a lot of beliefs, um, and they parade under a lot of names, and, and I don't want to get into too many details, but there's a whole corpus of theology, some of it good, some of it bad, known as covenant theology or replacement theology, and it is this idea that God started with Israel, they blew it, so God swapped in the church. That basically, God had plan A, which was everybody was going to be saved by obeying the law and doing the sacrifices and the whole Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers thing. But that didn't work. So then Jesus and God were sitting in heaven and they went, well, what do we do next? And they said, hey, here's an idea. Let's get a bunch of, I mean, not the greatest plan. Let's get a bunch of Galilean fishermen together. Let's have Jesus go and die and be raised again and let's entrust the fate of the hope of the faith of the world in the hands of those fishermen. That's plan B. This is not, Paul says, it was never plan B. It was never God's will that human beings would be saved by having a list of rules they could follow and they could just as long as they stayed in their lane, they'd be happy. That was never God's intention. Paul says that was the glory of what has come, the thing that is happening with the Spirit of God. It is much bigger than that because it is permanent. This is what God intended. Now, the Apostle John will put this in a beautiful poetic term. The Apostle John will describe Jesus as the Lamb who was slain from the foundations of the earth. Now, if you haven't had, if you haven't been around me long enough, um, you, eventually, if you hang out with me, you will find out that I love John. What the way that John describes things—the Gospel of John, First, Second, Third John, the Revelation, which is written by John—but John describes Jesus as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. Why does he say that? Because it was never meant to be that we could abide upon our own righteousness and observance of the rules and the right sacrifices and kosher laws and all those things, and that would be good enough to get grace from God. That was never God's plan. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Their minds were hardened for this, to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Paul says, I was a Jew. I, I am a Jew. I mean, Paul seems to die a, a Torah observant Jew. But he says, the problem was, we, we got the law from, from God, but then we were terrified of the glory of God, and so we veiled Moses, and we hid from the glory, and when the glory was gone, all we had was the words. No spirit, no life, just words. Because the end of verse 14, only through Christ is the veil taken away. 
Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Again, Paul reiterates, Look, I preached the Scriptures to you. You heard them and knew them to be true. And then your Holy Spirit sealed them, confirmed them in you. And you can choose to either take the authority of Scripture and the authority of the teaching of Scripture and you can make it a prison or you can use it, you can see it as the freedom. Now, let let me talk about that word for a second, freedom. Freedom is not anarchy, okay? I have a lot of anarchist friends. I don't know why. I seem to have this thing. I run into anarchists and Wiccans. I I do it all the time. Um, And it's a fascinating world to live in. I I actually know an anarchist Wiccan, but um, actually all Wiccans are anarchists, kind of by definition. Uh, But anyway... um, Anarchy is everybody just do whatever you feel like doing. It doesn't matter. Everything's great. In fact, one of the fundamental rules of Wicca is do no harm. You can do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt another person. Doesn't that sound, that sounds really good, right? I mean, that's simple. It's a really great idea. Uh, The problem is if you're deciding whether what you're doing is harmful or not, guess what you're always going to decide? Well, it didn't hurt. I mean, people, if, if we're evaluating whether something hurts another person or not, we're always going to do it based on our own interpretation of it, our own thinking of it. Um, I used to train with a guy um, in, in martial arts who simply believed that as long as he could keep pushing, my wrist would keep moving. And he would have my wrist all bound up. And we're talking when I was like a, a like before I was a white belt, right? And he's got my wrist and he's got it folded around behind my back and he can still keep moving. So he's like, it's okay. And I'm sitting there going, stop, stop. Hey, please stop. Don't do that. My wrist, my wrist. Could you stop? Could you stop? And he's like, no, no, I can keep going. I'm like, no, no, this is not the question. I didn't ask you if you could keep going. I was informing you that my wrist can't anymore. And to this day, this wrist does not, does not turn as well as this one does. Um, because he really kind of cranked on that and just kept pushing and kept pushing and kept pushing. Wasn't listening. When we, when we're, when I, when the standard of thinking is always, um, my harm. Anyway, so, uh, one of the things about anarchy and one of the things about, um, that kind of thinking is that that kind of thinking says you are free to do whatever you want. And that exists in Christianity. You will hear it preached on the Christian networks. Um, And I won't name specifics, but there are these people who basically believe anything you do as a Christian has to be sanctified. You wouldn't desire to do it if God hadn't given it to you. What a great arrangement. God prompted me to rob a bank. You You can't prosecute me. God told me to do it. All right? That's not how it works. What is freedom? Freedom is not no rules. Freedom is not there's no responsibility. Freedom is here's the foundation. 
We operate from this foundation. And we as Christians who have heard the word of God, have it's been spoken to us and we've heard it and the Holy Spirit has confirmed it, we have a foundation for us to then move freely. But we also have a standard by which we look at our movements and our decisions and we, we can know whether the Holy Spirit is leading us into that uh, action. What Paul was dealing with with the Corinthian church was not that they were not submitting to teaching. It is not that they were not submitting to authority. It was that the authority they were submitting to was trying to restrict them into righteousness rather than grounding them in righteousness. Now, one of my favorite apostates, I have a lot of favorite apostates. I hang out with Wiccans and I read apostates. Um, uh, There's a guy a little older than me. He pastored in Detroit for a while uh, named Rob Bell. Now, if you know that name, uh, you know that Rob um, Rob went uh, didn't just go off the deep end. All right, uh, Rob went off the deep end of one of those horizon pools. You know, the ones where the it just like it just the horizon and the water and there's just edge. He just went right over that. Um, he works for Oprah now. That's all you need to know about Rob. Um, but in, in his book, if you haven't heard about Rob, he had this amazing ability to write these really, really interesting, thought-provoking books with completely wrong conclusions. But one of the things that Rob one time said about, about theology, which has always resonated with me, because even an apostate can be right a couple times in his life, he said, too much theology is about building brick walls and then fighting not to let people take the bricks out because the wall will fall down. Too much Christian doctrine is about here's the wall. Don't mess with this. Don't you dare question this piece. Because if you question this piece, the whole thing's going to come down. And, and Rob said, he said, why can't we think of doctrine and theology, and I think there's some validity to this. I think you can go ex- insane. You can go too far with this. He says, but imagine if instead we thought of our theology and our doctrine as a trampoline. You went, what? Now, I am not going to set up a trampoline. I know a lot of you are disappointed. There's a one trampoline part in Merrimack. You don't need another one. Um, the, uh, he said, what if we think of it as a trampoline that God built for us to enjoy life, that doctrine grounds us and secures us and gives us the, the ability to live rather than doctrine being a wall that holds us in. Now, there has to be balance. Like I said, antinomianism, this idea that there's no scriptural authority, that's nonsense. But when we ground ourselves in truth, we find ourselves free to deal with the situations. I'm going to end with a, one illustration, and it comes from my daughter. So I hope she's not listening. What? I can draw, but we're not going to do that. Um, I taught my daughter to drive. Nicole and I were talking about this. All right, Ariel's 19 now. Um, she actually took her driving test during COVID. Um, so she had to do her driving test with the windows down and wearing a mask. And the instructor could only be in the car for five minutes. So, yeah. 
Anyway, she literally got out of the parking lot, drove down South Willow Street, got on to back on, got on the highway, went to Brown Ave, came back up and went to the DMV and pulled into the parking space and got passed. I'm like, all that work I did teaching this kid how to do these things. Now she had, she had, she had a driving teacher. Um, we had to unteach a lot of stuff that they taught her. Um, but, uh, um, but I taught my daughter, and one of the things that I taught my daughter when I was driving is that you can't plan for every possible scenario you will confront as a driver. You can't have a list of strategies for everything that you're going to deal with when you're driving. Now, if any of you have ever driven with one of those people, you can just see them. You can actually see them on the highway. It's the person. So you drive by. If you drive by me when I'm driving on the highway, this is what I look like. Right? Very relaxed. Arm on the windowsill. Don't drive like this, kids. But my arms are too short. I can't do the this thing. <laughs> then you drive by, of course, then you drive by, there's a list of people. I'm not going to get it. You can drive by the hats, right? The old guy whose hat is perched on top of his head, and, and he's got a bunch of veterans' hats on the back of his window. You, you know he's going to be a safe driver. He may be under the speed limit, but he's going to be safe. Then you see this person. All right, Ray and Ray and Betty. No offense to you guys. Usually driving a Prius. All right. Right? You know the person I'm talking about? You've seen that person? That is the person you do not want to get into an asymmetrical driving situation with. Because they do not know how to deal with whatever's about to come at them. Um, they, they are unable to handle that. You know the other, I have to add a second driver to this illustration. Who on earth is background checking Tesla drivers? Because I do not, I I drove by a guy, I get the autopilot thing, I get it, I understand, I don't trust it. I don't even trust cruise control. Trust this guy, I drove by a guy, was reading a newspaper, talking on his phone and eating a Pop-Tart. Because the car was driving on Interstate 93. No. Danger, Will Robinson. Get away from that guy. Anyway, so I taught my daughter how to drive. We're driving down to Virginia on Interstate 81. If you've ever driven to Virginia, uh, Interstate 81 comes off of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, um, and then it goes in the middle of nowhere, and every single trucker on the East Coast uses 81. Um, It is trucks just as far as the eye can see, no matter what time of day it is. She's driving on the road. There is no way. Now, Dad is sitting next to her, having been driving for nine hours. Um, you know, we switching off and everything. I'm leaving the car with her. I'm trying to make sure she doesn't wreck it on the way down. I am white-knuckled. Now, she can't see it, but I am terrified of this drive. I don't like being in the passenger side. I have this ungrounded suspicion that all accidents will come from this side. Um, I, I just, there, I don't like being there. My daughter is driving. And ultimately, I started to relax because I had given Ariel as much instruction as I could on the way to drive and deal with the situations. And I had to trust that if she encountered a situation she didn't understand, she would encounter it early enough that she would ask me what to do. And, and I had to trust that her ability, her instincts, her responses were good enough to keep us safe. Trust her to be as good a driver as she can be with the foundation I've given her. 
so many Christian leaders do not trust the Spirit of God to work in you after they lay the foundation. And so it is very easy to micromanage. It is very easy to make sure that nothing bad, try to prevent anything bad from ever happening. The truth is that we as followers of Christ, and and when I talk about followers and leaders, whether it's talking about a pastor or parents, or or you're, you're talking to someone who's interested in the Christian faith, and the best thing you can do is build the solid biblical foundation, teach the scriptures, hope that they hear, and that the Holy Spirit will confirm. Otherwise, you will find that everything you do as a Christian and as a believer will sit on your shoulders and you will think of it only as your accomplishment and your ability and your work. And listen, the infinite God carries those burdens for us because we are not capable of carrying them. Trust the Holy Spirit to work Biblical foundation, the Spirit's work, and freedom. Um, I get a lot of questions as a pastor. Um, One of the questions I get is, when will so-and-so, when will you get so-and-so to get saved? All right? Um, Pastors like to count coup. I don't know if you know this. They like to tell other pastors how many people got saved and baptized in their church. I don't know what it is. It's a thing. It's, it's, it's like hanging out, again, no offense to anybody, it's like hanging out with a vegan. How do you know if you're hanging out with a vegan or a CrossFitter? Don't worry, they'll tell you. Um, and they, these guys, these guys will, these guys are, they, they want to count coup and they want to, they want to make the count. And, and you know what? That's not what we're called to do. You know? Um, it's not what we're called to do. We are called to Lay the foundation of Scripture for ourselves and others, for them to hear and let the Holy Spirit speak. And sometimes the Holy Spirit's work, it happens right away. Sometimes it takes years and decades, but we have to trust the God of the universe, the sovereign Lord, the Savior, that he knows what he's doing. We do our part to lay the foundation and we let him work. That's the difference between a mausoleum and a home. If we try to restrict everything, we will kill it. But if we lay the foundation and let life be life, the Holy Spirit will work. We have to believe and trust that he's at work. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we as human beings, we like things done in our own timetable. But you are the God who brings life and growth. So we pray for the patience and the confidence and the freedom to build the biblical foundation, to speak and be heard for your Holy Spirit to work in the lives of those around us, whether it's our children or those who are curious about the faith, or even those of us who are struggling from time to time with our journey. Help us to be a place of life 
living people, living hope. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.